Today's reading is John 10, 1 to 10, and that's found on page uh, 1076. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Thank you, Holly. Man, we're going to miss you. You have been such a gift to us. But we're so excited you're taking the step of faith. Thank you. Shall we pray? Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know you this morning. Amen. Does anyone else love The Lion King? I'm a bit of a Disney slash Pixar fanboy, so I have a bit of bias. But bias aside, it's quite the exceptional feature-length animation. The film portrays a society with a very strong hierarchy that flourishes not because of its systems and structures, but because the animals who carry the most amount of responsibility do so with humility, wisdom, and the greatest care for others. But it all begins to fall apart when envy takes root. Scar, the brother of King Mufasa, covets his power, his reputation, and his brute strength. And there's a newborn heir on the scene. Scar's chance at the big-time throne is slipping away. It has all but evaporated. So he resorts to murder, lies, manipulation, intimidation, and control. Yet, when he finally has his hands on that illustrious title, he creates a dictatorship where life is so unsustainable for everyone and he still can't shake the envy. He, he lives overshadowed by his dead brother, who carried the role with grace and much more success. Envy is an insatiable beast, isn't it? More deadly than claws and teeth. As Graham Tomlin puts it, envy has no end game. It is hard to shake or satisfy. It's like an itch that's impossible to reach, and it comes to us all in different ways. Envy was on the table for the first, very first humans, who were privy to a divine relationship, given an exceptional calling, and made in God's image. 
but who also saw equality with God as something to be grasped and coveted God's wisdom for their own gain. Envy was an option for Jesus' nearest and dearest, even for Peter, who was given a new identity by Jesus, lovingly restored despite quite a catastrophic threefold mistake, and given a calling entrusted to no one else. Still, he coveted. Envy is not a social media phenomenon. It is not the curse of a particular generation who pulled the short straw. It is not simply the result of consumerism, individualism, celebrities, the media, workplace culture, social structures, or institutional hierarchies. Envy has always been an option. And we are, maybe privately, all too familiar with envy because no human experience is uniform and because the devil seeks to steal, kill, and destroy by any lie possible. And his methods tend to be very pervasive and very persuasive. You know, you may be living in a landscape where it feels as though everyone else is living on luscious green, envy-free grass. But they are most certainly not. This is a universal problem. Now, the passage I chose this morning may not feel like a classic envy passage, but there are three things that really jump out to me from it. Firstly, we can distinguish the voice of the shepherd, the voice of truth from others. Secondly, his voice leads to life. And thirdly, lies will come. They are guaranteed. But we do not have to let them steal the life from us. Jesus is clear. The lies will come. Envy will be an option. But please, 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 don't be feel guilty when that voice arises. Be encouraged that Jesus knows that you are able to overcome it. As Martin Luther once put it, you cannot keep birds from flying around above your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. What a thing it would be to be to be prolific at overcoming envy to live free from a narrative that our well-being, our contentment, our worth is defined by a set of circumstances. So how do we combat that lie? How do we live well, whatever our lot? Well, I have three suggestions that may help us on the road to overcoming envy. Classic sermon, three points, all sound very similar. Firstly, mind the gap, then mind the gift, and most importantly, mind on God. Mind the gap. You know, sometimes when we are envious, we mis- might misdiagnose it as feeling jealous or making comparisons because we are either unaware or unwilling to own up to the severity of the problem. I mean, surely it's not that bad, right? Being a little envious, it's all in my head. Who am I really hurting? But the thing is, envy is dark, insidious, destructive, and deadly. Graham Tomlin says, if left unchecked, envy has the capacity to possess a human entirely. Proverbs 14 verse 3 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, body, but envy envy rots the bones. Job 5 says this, resentment kills a fool. 
and envy slays the simple. Sure, envy is not an unforgivable sin, but if entertained, it, has a, it is a lie that will tear the life to the full from underneath our feet. Notice that in our Bible passage this morning, it says that the thief comes to steal, to steal you away from God, from his family, from what he would have from you, to take you out of the place of protection, provision, direction, and sacrificial, safe, eternal love. We need to mind the gap between what we have and what we desire because envy is a very deceptive idea. What I hadn't realized when the Bible talks about envy is that it's not quite synonymous with jealousy. As Graham Tomlin explains, to be jealous is to protect or defend what is ours. And when overplayed, jealousy can become possessive or confining. That sounds a little different to envy. Envy is also not the same thing as comparison. Healthy comparison is about shared learning, understanding, and growth for the benefit of all. But as soon as it becomes about position, validation, insecurity, self-deprecation, that's no longer constructive. That is seeping into envy. And we can be oblivious to envy sometimes. It masquerades itself. And we might start, you know, critiquing or dissecting the blessing that other people seem to have in their lives from a distance. And we begin to justify our judgmental ways. We call it being discerning. But really, we're wading in with our opinions in the hope of finding our neighbors to be flawed or feeble. And so we feel bigger and better about ourselves. The biblical understanding of envy is pretty strong. Envy is feeling entitled to what belongs to others, to want what someone else has, and to desire it at their expense. Let's think about the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Well, that doesn't really leave any loopholes. However you are susceptible to it, envy is definitely out of bounds. But let's just use one of those items in the list as an example. It talks about not coveting your neighbor's ox. Not really a contemporary item of choice, But it doesn't say, you shall not work towards an agricultural system where there is enough oxen for all. It says, you shall not covet their ox at their expense. We have to mind the gap between what we have and what we want because envy is a deceptive idea. And it would be foolish of us to think that contentment is found by being on top of those around us. Think back to those who maybe first heard those Ten Commandments. It feels as little as though God might be saying, I have liberated you from slavery. I parted the seas, led you by a pillar of clouds and a pillar of fire, miraculously provided bread for you each day and given you everything you need. You have me, the one true God. Trust me, you have enough. You don't need their rocks. 
Envy is a deceptive idea, fooling us into thinking that the God who provides, the God that we love, the God that we follow, is not enough. But, I hear you asking, if, envy, if God is so amazing and what he provides is enough, why does envy creep in? And why is it so strong and compelling? Well, firstly, there is a ring of truth to envy. Do they have more? Well, yes, they probably do. And secondly, the enemy is cunning. The thief knows what he's doing. Satan pulls on some of God's greatest ideas. Truths like, we were made to flourish. We were made to be like God. We were made for deep relationship with God. And we were made with a vocation in mind that would shape the world. Then, the enemy twists those ideas. I have worked hard. My neighbor looks like they're flourishing more than me. Why can't I have what they have? I have been so good at keeping God's ways. Why is it so hard for me to see, know, and understand him? What's wrong with me? That person in my life group, they seem so on fire for God. Maybe it's not real. Maybe they're putting it on for show. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm part of the winning team that is called to seek God's kingdom. But my five loaves and two fish, surely they can't be enough. My current role is so insignificant, and others have so much more influence. But then, I could do better than them. Does it matter how I climb the ladder? As long as it's me at the top, and not them. Or I think perhaps the devil's favorite deception that we find way back in Genesis 3, the words, did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? Did God really say that he wants me to flourish? Did God really say he wants to be with me? Am I really part of his plans? Surely there's no room for me when I look at them. Man, I wish I was them. I wish, I I want, I must have what others have. That kind of deceptive idea, that lie from the enemy, it leads to misdirected, misappropriated, distorted desire. You know, human desire is actually something I believe the church has made a mess of describing. That human desire at its root can be beautiful, it can be holy, and God made it. You know, God made us with imagination, the capacity to dream of a world that thrives so that we would have the inspiration, the drive, and the direction to partner with him in making this world a better place. The Beatitudes in Matthew 5 speak of people who have holy desires, those hungering and thirsting for righteousness, those whose first instinct is to be merciful, those who are inclined towards peacemaking, those who pursue purity. Healthy desire is something we can nurture and appropriate over time. Distorted desires do not need to be the master of us. As my friend Simon once said, to scratch every itch, to succumb to every desire, that's a strange kind of slavery. For centuries, theologians, philosophers, have pointed to mankind's ability to desire as evidence for the existence of God. 
as C.S. Lewis summarizes, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Perhaps desire, holy desire, can fuel our hope for the eternal life he promises. We can disregard envy because we know our current hardships do not feature in the final chapter. And there will come a time where there will be no more pain, no more mourning, and no more loss. Now, if you are at disease with the way things are in your life, what is at the root of that? Is it envious? Is it self-seeking? Does it bear no concern for others? Or is it pure, selfless, godly desire? If you do nothing else today, ask God to, show, to, to search your heart and show you what's really going on. And if you, you, like me, know you are largely restless because you want more for yourself, what practical actions can we take to mind the gap, to shift the focus away from ourselves, to put others first, and let God be God? Before we get on to the practical stuff, I have one more thing to say on the problem of envy. Let's take further stock of Jesus' words. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Kill and destroy. In Genesis, Joseph's brothers are envious of the favor Joseph has with their father and with God. When Joseph comes to his brothers offering kind, concerning words from their father, they don't get to hear it. They are so blinded by anger and envy. It takes hold. They lash out in malice, violence, and greed. And Joseph suffers a betrayal so deep. Pain, loneliness, slavery, imprisonment. And they go away and lie to their father, who suffers immense grief and family breakdown ensues. In Samuel 1, Saul is so envious he attempts to murder multiple times. He manipulates David using his own daughters as bait. He tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, when he defended David. He becomes paranoid that his officials are plotting against him and tries to buy their allegiance. He kills the priests who try to protect David, plus their entire village. Envy wreaks havoc in our world. Anger, violence, lies, manipulation, betrayal, bribery, threats, gossip, slander. If you entertain envy in one area of your life, it will pick away at the whole and will ca cascade into other destructive behaviors that damage our world. Graham Tomlin adds, envy sees the strength, talent, or goodness of others as a threat. And if we can't own them, vows to destroy them. Sadly, I think the, the way that we see envy destroy most is in our relationships. You may have heard the popular idiom, comparison is the thief of joy. But I would add, envy kills compassion. How much can we really care about others when we are so concerned with what we can gain for ourselves? I can think of a number of situations where I know someone who is having a tough time, and my immediate first thought has been, they just need to remember how much more fortunate they are than me. Or they need to remember that the decisions they've made have led them to this point. This is on them. 
How relationally damaging is that thought? It carves a barrier between me and them. We may be familiar with Paul's famous words in 1 Corinthians about love. It's often quoted at weddings. It starts, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy. It doesn't boast, it's not proud. And then have you noticed it actually... Paul doubles down again on envy and pride. He says, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. There is no wriggle room. If you envy someone, your love for them is lacking. And it destroys those relationships. I think the other thing that envy most obviously destroys is people's futures. We can spend so much energy chasing other people's tales that it easily distracts us from what God has for us. Bill Johnson says this, if we cannot celebrate another's breakthrough, we can't be trusted with our own. If we cannot celebrate another's breakthrough, we can't be trusted with our own. And I think he's right. If we cannot celebrate another's promotion, we will not handle success safely. If we cannot celebrate another's romantic life, we risk bitterness creeping into our own relationships. If we cannot celebrate another's gifting, our own gifts will be used for selfish gains. Envy destroys collective futures too. Bath, sadly, is a city that's sometimes described as a graveyard for ambition. Meaning we prize comfort, leisure, and convenience above all other things. And so we ignore the things that truly matter and disappear into ourselves. What a difference it would make to the well-being of our city if all who call Jesus Lord were living free of envy and living selflessly for our neighbor. You know, our world is so vastly diverse and God's plans are so beautifully bespoke It can be hard not to envy. But why would we want to water down God's creative intent? How bland would that be? Life, each life, is the most unique and beautiful thing. So, I've been saying how bad envy is for a long time now. What can we actually do about it? Well, firstly, I think we need to mind the gift. Firstly, let's mind the gifts. Let's be purposeful and deliberate in celebrating the unique gifts that God has blessed each person with. And perhaps as we practice gratitude, our hearts will catch up with our hands and envy will be tuned down in the mix of our minds. So what do you need to do? Is it praying for those who have more or who have what you want? and praying that God would double down the blessing on them? Is it speaking well of the success of a peer in your work or industry that they might actually get the recognition they deserve for all their achievements? Is it sending an encouraging message to someone at church who has the gift you most eagerly desire? Is it visiting that successful church over there and learning from what God has blessed them with and encouraging them in what they are doing? Is it offering to babysit for that family who look like they have it all together? Is it taking the time to write a list of things that God has given you and then to write a second column writing how you're going to give them away this week? I love John 13. 
Yen referred to it last week, but my favorite bit is this in verse 1. Knowing that his hour had come to return to his father. Returning to his father, the very place where the whole world will be beneath his feet. What is the first thing he does with that promise of power and majesty? He tends to the dirt on the feet of others. So that's the first thing we can do to combat envy is to mind the gift as well as being wary of the gap. But finally, let's put our minds on God. Let's get upstream on stopping envy. We must get beyond ourselves. Psalm 16 in part reads this, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. Counsel, instruction, stability, a glad heart and restful contentment. This is what comes when we celebrate his nature. This is what happens when we look to the God who is by our side. Perhaps one of the most famous bits of scripture on desire is this. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I do wonder how our desires might be redirected if our first port of call was always delighting in the Lord. Now, I could list numerous ways that it's possible to delight in the Lord. Spiritual disciplines, you know, walks, Creation, beauty, music, book, art, small groups, sermon podcasts, silence. But m- the most important thing, I think, is actually motivation. One of the things I'm attempting to do at the moment, albeit very inconsistently and poorly, is to read the Bible with delighting in God as my main agenda. Not looking for wisdom, not looking for guidance not looking for an argument, simply reading the book to get to know God better and to celebrate him. Now, if anyone else wants to give this a go, it's it's been a beautiful experience actually when I've bothered to do it. And, And I simply do it by doing this. Every time I read a verse, I then write a note and it starts like this. You alone are. You alone are. And then I finish it by writing, describing something that's unique about God that I find in the verse I just read. Obviously, with some verses, it's more straightforward than others. But that discipline of saying, you alone are, sets my mind not on what I can gain from God, but what I can celebrate about him. So as I finish, what can you do today to put God at the center, at the forefront, what would help you to celebrate and delight in him? I don't know about you, but I feel very challenged by a lot of what James has shared. I'm just going to just take a moment
Father God, you know each one of us. And you know the shape of our hearts. And Father, we, we can't hide from you because actually you know everything about us. But Father, your desire is for us to be in relationship with you. Your longing is for us to run to you. Father, I pray that you would soften my heart where I've grown cold, where it's become hard and crusty. Holy Spirit, I pray that for each one of us, as we come to you in worship in a moment, Lord, would you give us hearts that actually are crying out to be made soft? Would you help us to lay down our envy, our pride, the things that are just nagging away and stealing our joy, stealing our peace? Father, as James has said, we choose, we choose to lift our eyes upward, our gaze upward rather than sideways to what others have. You are our good Father. Holy Spirit, would you just come and work within each one of us to help us become more like Jesus? We offer you ourselves as we worship and pray that you would just soften us to, to all that you have. Thank you, Father, that the plans that you have for each person in this place are for good. They are for good, we declare in Jesus' name and for your glory. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness.